You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. I'm going to invite you to pick up a Bible. You should have one on your seat, or if you don't have one in there, uh, but write whatever you so choose. You're going to mark a few places in your Bible ahead of time. We're going to just be in three main places, really in two main places, after we do our first reading. So Revelation chapter 6, that's page 1092 in the church Bible. Mark that. Back to it. Revelation 13, that's page 1097. Mark that. Chapter 6, chapter 13. And then our reading first is going to be in Matthew 24. And while you're turning there, if you have questions on eschatology, on end times, we want to be able to try and help steer you towards the right resources, give you the answers if we have them. Um, we're hoping we're ap- uh, wetting your appetite uh, for the things of God and that you're going to want more answers. There's lots of stuff I'd like to continue to talk about. Uh, I just don't have time for it. We could talk about uh, the battle of Gog and Magog. I'd like to talk about the 144,000 Jews that are going to be saved and what they're going to do. I want to talk about the two witnesses uh, that are going to uh, stand Uh, for God in the last days, but I just don't have time. But if any of you are passionate um, about the topic and you'd like to write about it and go out in our uh, weekly updates on one of these, uh, please feel free to talk to me about it and uh, and we'd love to make it happen because there are, anyone can take God's word and uh, bless the congregation. So let's read Matthew 24, verses 15 to 22 together. This is Jesus talking. He is uh, referencing the great tribulation uh, that is going to take place, the second half of the tribulation. And he says this, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those in Judah must flee to the mountains. A man on a housetop must not come down to get the things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant woman and the nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For at the time there will be great distress. The kind that hasn't been taken place from the beginning of the world. Now, until now, and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. Let's pray. God, I would love to come to the congregation and share a warm, fluffy, easy, light subject. Uh, But that's just not what we are going to talk about today. Lord, we're going to talk about what you say is, you said it, the most distressing time in the history of humanity. And that could be terrifying to us, uh, 
especially those of us with children. Lord, that can seem like hopelessness for the future. God, but I pray you would give us hope because there is great hope in you. No matter what comes, you promise to be with us, to never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, whether it's a, uh, in fact, us who live through that, or it's a different generation, or we live through some sort of great hardship uh, that we have never faced in Canada, Lord, we need real faith. We need faith that's more than just built off prosperity and easy, good times. We need faith in you, faith that you live inside of us, faith that you're walking with us, and faith that you will uh, go to work supernaturally for us. We need that kind of faith that's real, Lord. Would you give that to us? And would you help me, a simple man, uh, to talk about this uh, great event that will take place? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we are talking about the Great Tribulation. Uh, the tribulation, which is seven years of uh, the last period of humanity, the last period of this earth before the new heaven and the new earth are made, and then it's the best time forever uh, for those who put their faith in Christ. The tribulation split into two sections, the first half, the tribulation, the second half, the great tribulation, and really what it's about is two primary things going on here, two primary things. One is the world will get what it wants. The world will get what it wants. It will get the perfect embodiment of everything opposite to Jesus Christ. It will get uh, the fruit of everything that rejecting God produces. They will get their leader, their Antichrist. And they'll get it because that's what humanity wants. Back in uh, Matthew 24, verse 14, it tells us uh, that... Um, or sorry, correction, uh, back in John 18.40, when Jesus is brought before Pilate, he's arrested by the Jews, he is brought before Pilate, the governor of uh, Rome, and uh, he questions him to find if there's any fault in him. And uh, Pilate brings him back out and says, I find no fault in this man, uh, but it is customary for me to release one of the prisoners every year. Uh, would you like me to release Jesus, the king of the Jews? And the people, I quote, yell back, they shouted back and said, no, give us Barabbas. They wanted the opposite of Jesus. They wanted a rebel, a murderer, a thief. And in their days, we know that in the last days, the gospel will go out to all of nations. But the reality is, is that many people will reject God. And not only just reject him, but want what is opposite. And we can see that in our society. There is a great push for anything that is not built on biblical principles. So they'll get what they want. God will allow them to have it. Number two, really the primary thing that's going on during the tribulation is God is pouring out wrath on the world. And we here in this period right now, we see both evil and we experience both good. Every day when the sun comes up and the rain falls and the birds chirp and, and, and we go for a swim in the lake and we eat the food that's grown from the earth, we are experiencing good things of God. Even the wicked, the Bible says, experiences the goodness of God. And, and in this tribulation period... Uh, those things will be taken away. We also see the evil of our day. We see, it, the Bible says, that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Meaning, don't believe everything that you hear. 
Because the world, outside of those who are being filled with the Holy Spirit and, and are born again and thinking with the mind of Christ, are under the sway. That means they're most likely going to be swayed or influenced by the evil one. And we see that. But in this great tribulation period, God will be allowing them to have what they want, and God will pull back his goodness, and he will pour out wrath. And that's a hard concept for us to think about. God being angry. God being ticked off. I can remember a man. He was, he was quite a wicked man. Um, I served with him. He did a lot of things. Um, and he said something along the lines of this once when we were talking about God. He said, if there's really a God, why doesn't he come and stop me from doing all the evil things that I like to do? Yeah, those things. Come on, God, he yells out. Where are you? Bring it on. And God will someday bring it on. God will someday make his move. God will pour out his anger and his wrath on an unbelieving world. And this shouldn't surprise us when simply a, a simple statistic, and I say this with no ease, and I know that not all circumstances are plain and simple, but in Canada just last year, right, we... Kill, killed 85,000 unborn babies. And nobody really cares. Even the church really doesn't really care that much. And so, why would we think God is not ticked? And why would we think God will not someday make the earth pay for those things. And so those are the two primary things that are going on in the tribulation period. And, and now last week we talked about where the church possibly could be. There's three uh, possible choices which people would uh, work towards and hopefully you are working through that on your own. Two weeks ago we talked about this man called the Antichrist who will rise up and, and uh, promise all the things to the people that they want. And three weeks ago we looked at the signs of the times. A lot of those signs we see increasing in our day and our time. And now we pick it up. The world is in chaos. Financial systems, we would uh, most likely guess, are melting down and coming apart. There is wars uh, all over, most likely in the Middle East. Maybe the war, the battle of Gog and Magog, when there is a bunch of nations who will invade Israel in the last day we know, and they will supernaturally be defeated. That has most likely taken place. There are increasing natural disasters, which again we see happening all over the world. And the world cries out, somebody save us. And a man rises up, a man with the backing of at least 10 nations, uh, nations and leaders who will say, uh, uh, we, we know we're not doing a very good job. We know we haven't done it, but this guy will fix things. This guy will make things straight. This guy will provide everything we need. Daniel says that he will make through his great diplomacy skills. He will broker a peace deal in the Middle East for seven years, Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 says. And this kind of peace we've seen before in history, uh, in the time before Jesus, a couple hundred years before Jesus, uh, the Middle East was in chaos, very much in chaos. The Greek uh, empire had fractured after Alexander the Great had conquered uh, much of the Middle East and uh, 
Europe and northern Africa. Then he died, and it was split up between four kings, and those four kings often warred against each other, and then they fractured, and there was tribal warfare all over the places, and it was chaos. And in the meanwhile, the Romans had been perfecting the art of warfare, and they developed the most advanced military that the world had ever seen. And they had something called, they, they brought something called Pax Romana, which means a Roman peace, a false peace or a forced peace, not the kind of peace where you sit down together with somebody um, who wants to reconcile and you come to a, an agreement or an understanding, but a sort of peace where a third party comes in. You invite a third party and you say, I'm warring with that person. Come to my aid and I will submit to you. And so people would invite Rome to come in and Rome would then go to the other part factor and say, uh, you will leave them alone. And you will submit to us or we will destroy you. And that is how Rome spread throughout, either by people submitting to them outright or them making them submit. That is, in fact, maybe you've wondered, how is it that uh, the Jews were being ruled by the uh, Romans when Jesus was born into the world? Well, it in fact happened when uh, the Jewish people invited Rome to come in and protect them from the Greeks who had been terrorizing them for a hundred years. You can read about it in the Maccabean uh, Wars, the history of that period of time before Jesus came. It's a false peace. It's the same kind of false peace that Hitler promised when he came in in the 20s and after World War I and the German ec economy was devastated and uh, money was worth nothing and people were starving to death and he promised, I will bring you peace. I will bring you prosperity. In fact, he was so much for the people, he even developed his own vehicle. It was called the people's vehicle, a Nazi vehicle, one could say. Anyone know what it is? It's a Volkswagen. That's, the, that's a company, but it's a Volkswagen Beetle. That was the people's car developed by the Nazis. So if you drive a Volkswagen Beetle, well, I guess... No, I won't go down that road. <laughs> Anyways... So he promised it. But here's the thing with those dictators is they always make promises and they always deliver more than you bargained for. And that's what the Antichrist will do. He will promise peace. He will bring peace to the Middle East. Both Jews and Muslims will agree to his terms. And you might say, how could you get the Jews and the Muslims to ever agree? Well, for the last couple of decades, the UN and Palestine have been petitioning Israel to give them a part of Israel, part of Jerusalem specifically. And, and they want part of the city. And, and so I can see, or theologians would see, uh, that in order for the temple to be rebuilt, which we know will happen, the Israel and the Muslims will have to give and take. And so there's a picture if, of that is the Dome of the Rock. That is uh, where the temple uh, that Nehemiah built uh, once sat. And in 70 AD, the Romans tore it down. You can see the, uh, the outskirts uh, of what used to be in the temple. And there's the wailing wall in front of it where Jews come and they pray. It's the only place where the Jews are allowed. And that building is called the Dome of the Rock, the second most holy place uh, in the Muslim faith, built, I believe, in the 8th or 9th century after Christ. And so what they say is there will be a temple. And you could see a temple being built and plunked right beside that Dome of the Rock. And there will be relative peace between the Jews and the Muslims for a certain amount of time. And, 
if anyone can bring peace to the Middle East, which no president has been able to do, no prime minister has been able to do, people will flock to that person. And the sacrifices will start again. And this will, in fact, be the first judgment of God. And you'll find the judgments, uh, all 21 of them, I've listed them um, in the references on page 22 of your study guides. And they're, they're seals, trumpets, and bowls. Seals speak of uh, a scroll that in the old days uh, royalty would put a seal on it and no one was allowed to open that seal unless they had the authority to do so. And we see Jesus is the only one, it says, that has the authority to open the seals. And so the first seals are opened and then the trumpets. Some trumpets always uh, are um, significant or speak of Um, a beckoning or a calling of people that royalty is about to enter. Royalty is about to speak. Whenever a king was about to come into the presence of the people, the trumpets would sound. He was going to make a declaration, a proclamation. I remember when we were receiving our medals, uh, the governor general and a woman called the Countess of Mumbatha, British royalty, she came over from England and she uh, came in with the governor general and the trumpets Uh, sounded to tell us, get ready, royalty is about to enter the room. So too are the trumpets of judgment saying God is about to make a verdict. And then the bowls that we see listed are the bowls of God's wrath. They are signifying that God is ticked. God has been storing up wrath towards an unbelieving earth and he is going to pour it out. Wrath is something hard for us to understand or Think about if you've ever read, and I'd recommend it, a a great book. It's probably the most historically accurate book about William Wallace. It's called Scottish Chiefs. It was written in the 18th century, um, and it speaks of William Wallace, uh, who lived in the 14th century, who fought against the uh, British occupiers who occupied Scotland. And what most people don't know is that he was actually a nobleman, and he very much cared and loved the people. He was not a nobleman like a typical politician who's in it for themselves, a career. No, he was there for the people. And so he would, he would, uh, he would put up with the abuse because he knew if, if he revolted, if the people revolted, they would, uh, the English would really harm and kill and destroy more than they already were. But he would see the travesties going on. And, and then the British killed his wife. And that was the end point for William Wallace. And the wrath of William Wallace uh, came out and was laid out on the British. And the British, the most powerful empire that hadn't been defeated for a century in open warfare, all of a sudden felt the wrath of William Wallace. And in the same way, except to a much, much greater extent, the world will feel the wrath of a patient and loving God who has now said, enough. Enough. And if you Revelation chapter 6, you're going to see what the first seal is. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 says, Then I saw the Lamb, that's Jesus, open up one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him. And he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. God essentially says, fine, I'll give you what you want. The first judgment 
Some people get this mistaken and think this is Jesus. This is not Jesus on the white horse. This is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is allowed by Jesus to go out and do what he does. Fine. You want the opposite of me? I'll give you the opposite of me. I'll let you have your leader. And he will be given much power. And with much power comes much many enemies. And the Bible doesn't say that everyone will submit to him. There will be nations that war against him. Most likely secular uh, dictatorships, other power-hungry people will war against the Antichrist. And, and a group will appear to have killed him. Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. But he will be still alive and that people will now look to him like a god, like he is supernatural in himself. And so the Antichrist will go to war with them. It says he went out a conqueror in order to conquer. And yet he won't be able to bring peace. That's the thing. That's the thing that we always need to remember they keep pushing you as a Christian. Don't worry about what other people are doing, but it's you. You need to seek Christ with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. Because the thing that isn't, isn't going to bring world peace is more money. The thing that isn't going to bring world peace is more education or formal religion uh, or uh, more free stuff or doing whatever feels good to you. None of those things will bring lasting peace. The only thing that brings lasting peace to an individual is a transformed heart. Like, it doesn't matter what your brother or your friend does, God can still transform your heart if you'll allow him to. He can bring peace into you. That's the only thing that brings peace in marriages. That's the only thing that brings peace in a community, a nation, and the only thing that will bring peace in the world is transformed hearts. And so the Antichrist will try with might, but yet he will fail. And the second seal, if you look at verse 3, it says, When he opened the second seal, I heard, the lo- heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And the sword and a large sword was given to him. The thing we know about history, if you study Europe in the Middle Ages is that as wars go on, essentially, uh, civilization falls apart. And there is anarchy where there used to be stability. Police forces uh, rode down. Government workers no longer work because they're not getting paid. There's no longer food. And so there's a lawlessness amongst the warring nations. And that's why, again, I push you. We don't know where we'll be. We don't know if we'll be a generation that lives through this. We don't know if we'll be in heaven. We don't know if we'll go through something else. Hardship is all over the place. We don't know if we're going to have the easy North American Christian lives that we've all grown up and most of us enjoyed. But there is one who can sustain us through anything, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why I encourage you to share the gospel with those around you, to not just try and bring them to church, but share it yourself. And the best, the, best, uh, the best thing to show people Christ, the best way to show them is to allow him to transform your heart so that they can see there's something different about you. It's not just in your words, but it's in the way you live and treat people. And so after war, 
always comes famine. And with famine means a scarcity of stuff, a scarcity of food, scarcity of things uh, being developed because war disrupts economies. And then that leads to inflation, and inflation leads to hyperinflation. We see that in verse 5, the third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse, and its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Talking scales for weighing things. When I, then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarters of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. It's common knowledge that in the first century, a denarius was equal to roughly one day's pay. So if you worked a whole day, you could, in essence, get a one denarius. And it was common that a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley was equal to one person's food for the day. So what this is saying is after the war um, and after the famine comes what always happens, a scarcity of food, which uh, then inflates the price of something, uh, which means it's worth less. Uh, So that means there's more dollars chasing less stuff, which means the price of that stuff goes up. I keep this in my wallet. If you ever want to see it, I'll let let you see it. It's a a $50 trillion bill from Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, one of the many countries um, in history who hyperinflated their currency um, because of war and because of bad governing, uh, that at the height of their inflation, I bought this on eBay because it was no longer worth the, the paper it was printed on. Uh, at the height of their inflation, a $50 trillion bill could not buy a loaf of bread. And yet six years before, they were one of the strongest nations economically in Africa. And so governments do what governments do. They want to get reelected. They promise more free stuff. And so they promise free stuff, and they print a whole bunch of money they don't have, and then there's more money chasing the same amount of things or less things. We've seen that. We've experienced that to a lesser extent, right? Things are either going up in price or, like, you buy a package of cereal, and it's a smaller package of cereal for the same price. That's inflation. But governments have a choice. They either stop spending, which leads to deflation, or they keep spending, which is typically the route that they go. They just print more money, and that more money chases the same amount of stuff, and the price of that stuff goes up, so they print more money, and they do it, and so forth, and so, so on. And so we see that one day's wages will buy one uh, day's amount of food. So people in this day, the common people will be just trying to get food to survive. But notice it says, but don't harm the oil and the wine. That signifies wealth. The only people that had oil and wine in those days were rich people, wealthy people. And you wouldn't be surprised to know that during the last year, COVID, the rich have gotten a lot richer and the rest of us have gotten either a lot poorer or just less money. The total wealth of uh, the top 1% uh, rose, I believe, $1 trillion. Uh, That's in the U.S. alone. over 2020, uh, whereas uh, the money was then, like all the money that was given out freely for the government, a lot of people plunked it in stocks, which sent the value of stocks up, which those rich CEOs, their, their businesses were worth a lot more. But you'll be also interested to know that in the first quarter of this year, we racked on more debt as a society than since the last time we racked on this much debt was in 2007, the first quarter of 2007. And if you remember, 
what happened in 2008, it didn't go so well. And so we seem to be doing what we tend to do in history. The fourth seal says that one quarter of the earth will succumb to famine and plague. That's horrible to think two billion people succumbing to that. But that is what governments do. And the Antichrist is just going to function as dictators always function. We have to understand the way communists or fascists uh, attain power. They attain power by taking away the freedoms of people. And so socialism is one step before communism. Uh, Socialism says, when a government says, we'll give you lots of free stuff. Free education, universal income, free cars, free everything. Free education, we'll pay off your debts so on and so forth. Communism is what happens when the government realizes it can't pay for it. Because governments, in case you guys didn't know, don't actually produce anything. They just spend money, right? And so businesses, farms, they produce things. And so communism is what happens when the government says, well, to fund all these things, we need to take the farms, we need to nationalize the companies, and then you get what you get. What happened in, in Germany and in Russia and in China. And so that leads to famine. You'd be interested to know that after the first five years after Russia uh, flipped and went to communism, and same with China, they went through the worst famine in the history of their nation. Millions and millions of their own people succumbing to it. And it seems like that is what the Antichrist is bringing about as he is taking more and more power for himself. And then we go to Revelation 13. At this point, this reaches the halfway point. So the fifth seal is the halfway point of the tribulation. The fifth seal is when the Antichrist uh, goes haywire, when he claims to be God, when he starts to hunt down anyone who will not give themselves over to him. Revelation 13, verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling place, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who love in the earth will worship him, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. So the fifth seal corresponds with Revelation 13, verse 5, and so on, which also corresponds with Matthew 24, verse 15, that opening verse that Jesus was talking about. When you see the abomination of desolation, that is the Antichrist, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Daniel 9, 27 says of the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant for many, with many for one week. One week in prophetic language is seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will, not, he will put a stop to the sacrifices and the offerings. And the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decree of destruction is poured out on the desolator. So all four of these verses speak of the same event. The Antichrist now realizes that he cannot assume power just through uh, 
democracy or diplomacy, sorry, and he cannot achieve it just through might. So now he does what all dictators do, says everyone must worship me and submit to me as if I am God. He is just following the standard operating procedure of dictators. The Caesars, the Roman uh, emperors, uh, wanted and desired and requested and not requested and forced people to submit to them and worship them as gods. That's why they hated the Christians, because the Christians would not uh, worship them as God, because they would only worship Christ as God, and so they hunted them down. It's the same with Hitler. It's the same with Mao. They all wanted to be followed and worshipped as God, and that is what the Antichrist will do. Maybe you've wondered, as you've heard the news about North Korea over the years, over the last 70 years, why don't these people just like rise up and overthrow him. If they're starving to death, North Koreans have to eat grass much of the time just to supplement their diet because they have no food. Uh, They have horrible atrocities committed to them. And you might wonder, why don't they just rise up? Because they have been told from birth that the leader is like God. If you've ever seen a video of them, when there's a picture of of their leader, one of the um, Kims, they worship him and cry to him and, and, and think that he is like a god. And so it's not hard for us to think that people will turn to this Antichrist as a god. And that is what he will request. One religion. Then it says in verse 11, chapter 13, that a spokesman, we've talked about him a few weeks ago, the false prophet will rise up. Verse Chapter 13, verse 11. When I saw another beast coming up, from the earth, he had two horns like the lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, causing even fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs it was permitted to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. It makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on the right hand, or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless it has the mark of the beast, the marks, the beast's name, and the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it's the number of a person. Its number is 666. So he will sit now as he consolidates power and say, there is one religion, you worship me, there is one currency in order to participate to buy and sell in this world Uh, it will be digital and it will be some sort of mark most likely a chip and and you may see that sounds like conspiracy theory nut job stuff that you're watching on some weird channel late at night not true this is modern technology this wasn't achievable 10 years ago this is the kind of GPS I used in the early 2000s when I first joined the Army. It was like state-of-the-art. This thing, this black and white thing, would like pick up six satellites and tell me where I was on a topographical map. It was mind-blowing t- 20 years ago. 
Now it's nothing. The smartphone, the invention of the smartphone, allowed everyone to have not only GPS coordinates, but to have your finances managed on there, to have your identities uh, with the, these digital vaccine passports they're looking at having. Like All of this technology is available to anyone just on their phone. And, and if we get the slide up, in 2014 was the uh, introduction of Apple's watch. And this was on Time Magazine on their front cover, never offline, meaning you can have a watch where you will always be online, where it will hear you, where you can be contacted, where you will, it will know where you are. And that is what we see playing out in our society. Next slide. And I was shocked when I watched this a year ago. This is 60 Minutes. This isn't some out there news agency. 60 Minutes did a, a, uh, a story, you can watch it on YouTube or watch it online, about a chip that the Pentagon had created that would be inserted under the skin of their soldiers. The Pentagon oversees the U.S. military which it could then notify them if anyone gets COVID or any other disease. And they even talked about that it would be able to uh, give out vaccines in the chip or give out medications. Like we're talking, they have invented stuff that 30 years ago would have been, seemed like a scientific movie. And so it will be some sort of chip that will hold everyone's data, that will know where everyone is, and it will have a digital currency. If we can go to the next slide. And now we are seeing the rise of digital currencies. China is the most far ahead. They, have, they hope to be, or they plan to be, by 2025, completely cashless. Meaning that uh, right now they have about 300 million people who are are the test subjects for this, meaning that they are no longer using cash. Everything is digital, and that means everything that you buy, everything that you sell is tracked, um, and they plan to, like I said, by 2025, be completely cashless. But they're not the only country. Next slide. The European Union last year announced that by 2023, they want to roll out a digital uh, euro, which means that wherever you are, if you're in France or in Germany, everything, all the finances, they want to go through this digital euro. And then they were, they were really happy that this would allow them to collect tax right away. So if you hire the guy down the road to cut your lawn, guess what? You have to pay him digitally and the tax is taken right away. But it isn't only the European Union. Next one. Last year, the Federal Reserve, which oversees the U.S. economy, announced that it was in the starting phases of developing a digital U.S. dollar, which in essence means it would cancel out banks. There would no, be no more need for a bank, which is an intermediary uh, between the government and you, the person, and that now the government would be able to give money straight to, it would be the banker, straight to the person. So again, uh, they plan to roll it out hopefully by 2023, and that would then do with Visa cards, MasterCards, uh, banks, everything would be tracked. That is where we're going. 20 years ago, this technology didn't exist, but the Bible said that this sort of thing would happen. And of course, there will be, for those who don't want to participate in this in this economy, a black market, as there always is in countries where dictatorships rise up, where people go to bartering, essentially, and they trade things. And so 
the first five judgments, five judgments happened over the first three and a half years. But then the last three and a half years will be the last 16 judgments. If you go back to Revelation chapter 6, the sixth seal, and I'm not going to go through them all, just the seals, is the worst uh, earthquake in history. And then something is going to happen that's never happened before. The Antichrist sits in the temple of uh, Jerusalem, claims to be God, and the Israelites turn against him. They revolt. That's why Jesus said, when you see him standing there, run to the mountains because this is going to be the worst period. He will now claim to be the Messiah. He will claim to be the fulfillment of all religions. And the Jews will cry out to Jesus Christ. That is something that has never happened on mass. There has only ever been a small group of people called Messianic Jews who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, which is amazing because Jesus was Jewish. And yet they as a nation have rejected him more than any other nation that has, has had access to him has. And Paul tells us why in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. He says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you will not be conceited. A hardening in part has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove godless, godlessness from Jacob. And his, this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. Paul was talking to a bunch of Christians because they were mystified. They're like, why aren't the Jews coming to faith? Because at first the, the early church was only Jews. But then it spread to the Gentiles. And then the persecution came from the Jews. And so Paul's like, Paul's like I need you to understand. Their hearts have been hardened towards the Messiah. But there's going to come a time when that hardening will no longer be there. After the full number of the Gentiles, that's us, most of us, have come to faith, then they will call out to Jesus Christ. And there's lots of other verses, we'll look at a few of them in a few weeks, where they will cry out to him. And Israel is an amazing nation. If you can ever go there, go there. I was there in 2012. It is unlike any place I have ever been. Here it is. This place that you just walk in and it speaks of God. It speaks of his provision and his protection. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. Everyone around it would like it to be destroyed. And yet, there it is. And yet, they reject him. And, and not only reject Christ, but most, much of the world hates Israel. Have you ever noticed that? Like, there's more condemnation and scrutiny towards Israel than pretty much any other nation. Let me give you an example. The UN, last year in 2020, had 23 resolutions. A resolution is like they make a verdict. It's like they say this. It might not have any might behind it, but it's a, it's a resolution. They made 23 of them last year. 17 of those were against Israel. One of them was against North Korea, only one. One against Iran, one against Syria, one against Burma, two against Crimea, but 17 against Israel. There is this hatred of Israel unlike any other nation in the world, and it boggles my mind that other nations can fire rockets at them, and it's like, just take it, Israel. That's what the world essentially says. Just take it and deal with it. But if they retaliate, if they defend themselves, they are scrutinized and hated. 
Let me ask you a question. What do you think the U.S. would do if a bunch of us just started firing rockets across the border? What do you think they'd do? Would they just say, that's fine, you guys can do that? No, I'm pretty sure they would hit us pretty hard and pretty fast, right? And they would be justified in it. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if your neighbors decided to shoot at your house with your family inside of it? And you called the cops and the cops were like, we're not coming to help you. What would you do? Would you just be like, that's cool, that's fine? No, I'm sure you would like go and stop them, right? And that's what Israel does. And is the war there horrible? Yeah, it is. Do a lot of innocent people die? Unfortunately, yes, they do. But there is this weird uh, sort of hatred towards God's people because they are God's people. That's God's nation. That's where, where he first spoke to humans and where the end times will play out. The church was born through Israel and God has a special place in his heart for them. And so 144,000 Jews will come to faith. And then the seventh seal starts the seventh trumpet judgments. And you can read all of them, like I said, on page 22. You know, there's some pretty uh, hard-to-believe things that will happen. A meteor will hit the earth, uh, Revelation 8, verse 10, and one-third of the rivers and the springs uh, will be poisoned. Uh, Then in one of the bowls, number 5, Revelation 16, verse 10, I, and I had to read this a couple times my first time reading this because I was like, I can't believe that the Bible spoke of this. It says uh, that all the beasts, so that's the Antichrist, nations will all of a sudden go black. What is that? Well, that's only one of two things. That's either an electric magnetic pulse, meaning a nuclear weapon is detonated above the atmosphere. And when that happens, it fries because it's so powerful. It fries all the technology So you don't even, a nation doesn't have to fire at the country. It just has to fire it up into space. Once it leaves the atmosphere, if it detonates, bang, the grid collapses. Or it is a um, thermal magnetic pulse from the earth. So one of those two things causes the kingdom of the Antichrist to go dark. And all these things, you know, seem absolutely horrible. I wouldn't want to see this. I wouldn't want this on anyone. And it's hard for us to reconcile it when we are, a lot of us grown up believing that God is only loving, God is only patient, God is only kind. Why would he allow this to happen? Most of us are angry at God because he allows the evil things in the world to go on, right? Why are you allowing those things to go on, God? But then we're Uh, harsh on God when we say, oh, but that's too horrible of a judgment, right? We're always telling God, you're too slow to act, but when you act, you're too harsh. But the thing is, God is God. And God is the perfect judge, and God is patient, God is kind. But God is also ticked off. He's ticked off at all the sin. He's ticked off at all the evil. And Romans 2 tells us that he is storing up wrath until the day of wrath. Does he like it? Ezekiel 18 says this. God says this when he's talking about these things. He says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord. God in in question mark. Instead, don't I take pleasure when the evil and wicked turn from their ways and give me their lives? God would rather 
people turned to him. He would rather sinners like I was, evil men, turn to him and seek forgiveness and have him transform. God would rather that. But because God is just, he will punish sin where he finds it. And in this period, the earth will feel it. And, and I take, the only comfort I take is knowing that the children who are killed in that time will be taken to be with him if there are children on the earth at that time. But to those who would say, I don't know if I believe in God. I don't know if he's my savior. What would I say to you? I would say, seek mercy while it may be found. Like the prisoner who comes before the judge and, and doesn't arrogantly say, I'm not listening to you. I don't care what you say. Come before him humbly. Admit our guilt. Admit that we have stored up wrath for ourselves and seek forgiveness while it may be found, while the hand of God is out. That's what I said to a couple of guys. We usually get, probably every day, somebody come for food cards uh, or help financially. And there's two guys that came and they're like, uh, one of them I'd never seen before, the other one I had, I've gotten to know. And he kind of said, I don't know, trying to get me off balance. And he did. He said, what do you think of the Council of Nicaea? <clears throat> That's the council of people in the third century that put together the, the Bible, um, that drew the letters together and canonized it. And he was trying to get me to, he's like, it's pretty controversial, isn't it? And I was just quiet. And then I just felt, I was like, you know what? Let me tell you what I think of it. I was a rotten, filthy, empty, addicted, hopeless man. And then I read God's word overseas, and I read about this Jesus in the Gospel of John, how he was so merciful and so willing to meet me where I was. He wanted me as his son to forgive me for my sins, but he was also dead serious and said, don't come after me if you're not going to make me your king and your Lord. And so that God transformed my life when I cried out for him and is still transforming me and saved me and is my hope and my future. So what do I think of the Council of Nicaea? I don't really care. What do I think about the Jesus of the Bible and his word? I think he is our only hope. And then they were kind of just staring at me. But that's the truth. That's the truth. God will get us, whoever is living in that time, whether it be that time or a horrible time, God will see us through it. As he saw the, the Israelites through their escape from the Egyptians, he will see us through. He said this of them, Deuteronomy chapter 32. He found them in the desert, desert place, a howling waste of wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for them. He guarded, for, guarded them with the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up his nest and hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. No matter what we go through, Christians, if we seek him, he will let us find him. And what I really want, as Don gets ready to come up, what I really want you to, to just ask yourself, is Jesus Christ your Savior? Is he your Lord? Not your family members, not your friends, not your spouse, but yours. If you were faced with the kind of pressure to conform, to submit, would you buckle under the pressure in order to save yourself? Or would you put your faith, 
solely in Jesus Christ and not take and receive the mark and worship the beast and go with everyone else. Would you do that? That is the sort of faith we are seeking. That is the sort of faith God, God wants us. God said, we'll seek you or you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart, all your heart. On that note, I'm going to invite Don to come up, and he is going to lead us in communion, and then we'll be ready to go after that. I am so grateful, and I'm sure you are, that we have a Savior who is utterly reliable, and that we can trust him. He knows the end from the beginning, and he will take us through all these things, praise his name. And that's why he has instituted this feast, this, the Lord's table. In, uh, in uh, Philippians 2, it says, And God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, even at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. The angel came to Joseph and said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The names of Jesus. There is Emmanuel, God with us. He will, he's with us now, and he will be with us. As if we have to face all these things, we can write it on the bank of heaven that he will never leave us. Never forsake us. He is Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. We can rely on him. He is faithful. He is the Lord, the authority. He is the master. The disciples said, Did, uh, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? He is the master. And indeed, he is the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And he is the Son of God, and he is the Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. What thoughts we have of him. How wonderful we know him. And we can come together and think of him this morning. You know, he has a few names as given but he has many titles. In fact, I read that one theologian counted all the uh, titles of Christ, and it's over 150 in Scripture. Well, we do know that he's the fairest of the fair. He is uh, the bright and morning star. And we do know that he is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. It goes on and on. The list is great indeed. We hold to these things, and they're given to us to make us mindful of our great Savior. He is also the great shepherd, and not only the great shepherd, but you recall John the Baptist mentioned in uh, the first chapter of uh, the Gospel of John as he was with his own disciples, they were observing, and Christ passed that way, and he said, 
there is the Lamb of God. And he is the Lamb. When we think of the Lamb, innocence, love, caring, that's the Christ we worship. That's the Christ we have. Let us hold to the truth. And that's why he instituted this feast, this time that we can come together and think of him and remember him. This do in remembrance of me. What a privilege. And doesn't it lift us up to be able to think of what he gave up for us? Praise his name. So we're just going to give thanks for the bread and the cup and then we will participate in uh, the taking of these elements. Loving God and Heavenly Father, O Jesus, our Savior, we thank you that you are absolutely reliable and that your word is true. And we thank you, O Christ, that you went all the way to Calvary. Your body was broken. You were vilified. You were defamed in every possible way, and yet you are true. You are the one who keeps his word, and we just thank you for giving yourself for us. Thank you for the bread that you give us in remembrance of what you have given in yourself and your life. Then we thank you for the cup, the fruit of the vine, and also all the weight of that cup, and the evils within it that you drank, and you looked after us again because you shed your blood. And as it trickled down from the cross to the ground, it moved throughout the whole world. And there are millions upon millions who have uh, accepted your offer of free salvation due to the power of the blood and its cleansing uh, for us. Oh, Make us thankful, O God, and we thank you, dear Jesus, for what you have done. We pray this in his worthy, your worthy name. Amen. Now we can take the first element at the top of the capsule and open that. An unleavened, an unleavened, that's symbolic, unleavened wafer. And we will uh, just take this right now. Eat ye all of it. And then Christ said that I'm going to give you the fruit of the vine. And he did just that. He went and said, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood, which was shed for many for the remission of sins. This do in remembrance of me as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he comes. Drink all of it. Thank you for this opportunity, O oh God. Thank you for instituting this feast, O oh Savior. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with us, each one, now and forevermore. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.